Hey listeners, welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy. And before we get into today's episode, I am pleased to extend an invitation for you and a guest to join us at our annual launch event. This year, we're having a barbecue and open house just five minutes across the border in Linden, Washington. Logos Bible Software has gifted us the use of their Grace Manor Estate for this event. It is a beautiful property worth seeing in and of itself. This will be happening September 17th, 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And the theme for this year is In It But Not Of It, as outlined in John 17, 16 to 18. Apologetics Canada has plans for an amazing year of ministry ahead. This launch event is about sharing with you all that God is doing through this ministry and our vision and plans for the upcoming year. As well, we will be sharing a sneak peek of our most recent filming in Egypt for our project, Can I Trust the Bible? So come and hear from the AC team as we share all about what God is doing across Canada, hear more about what they are passionate about and the great work that we are doing in our region. We hope you will join us Sunday, September 17th for this year's launch event as we celebrate and prepare for another year of ministry. But now for the podcast, you're going to be hearing as Wes Huff interviews author and apologist Mike DiVirgilio as they talk about his new book, Why the Bible Cannot Be Made Up. If the Bible really was just made up and it's all fairy tales, would it make sense for the quote unquote heroes of the story to paint themselves in such a negative light? Well, find out on this week's episode. Welcome to the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast. Wes Huff here. I'm joined by Mike DiVirgilio, Christian apologist and author. And among a few books he's written, his latest title, Uninvented, Why the Bible Could Not Be Made Up, and the evidence that proves it, is what we're going to talk about today. So Mike, why don't you humanize yourself and give a, a little bit of background so our listeners can really get to know you. Who is Mike DiVirgilio? Well, some people might think it difficult to humanize me. Uh, only those that know me best. But I was uh, born and raised in Southern California, grew up Catholic, became a born-again Christian, as we called it back then in college, went to Arizona State. Great organization, and just totally fired up for the Lord. And then a few years later, decided to go to seminary. And in 1986, went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And I was never going to be a pastor. I was uh, more thinking scholar. PhD, that kind of thing. Then unbeknownst to me, my future wife was at the seminary as well. So we got married and went off into business and did things. And And I was always into apologetics. When I was in college, I came across uh, The God Who Is There by Francis Schaeffer. And I was like, wow, there's evidence for why this is real and true. And that's the only reason I believed it. So I was into apologetics a lot. Then I got out of it for a number of years. I'm just busy with raising three children, beautiful children, adults now. In 2009, because uh, I've always shared, the tr my first book was called The Persuasive Christian Parent, How to Build an Enduring Faith in You and Your Children, because I've always been an apologist to my children, you know, catechizing them, raising them up in the faith, because it's true, not because of any other reason. And so, but I was out of practice. So I have this encounter in 2009 with this coworker of mine, and I was so bad at it. I mean, I was embarrassed. So, you know, podcasts have just become a real big thing. And I started, you know, listening to everything and reading everything. And then about six years later, I, I came across this gal who, she was a Christian, grew up in a Christian home, and then punted her faith at college. And I was so angry. I, that's when I decided I was writing write my first book. Like, how did I do this? And then in that whole process of studying and reading for that book, I came across this idea of uninvented. Not the phrase, because I guess I made that up or something. But you just couldn't make the Bible up in these specific stories. And it was such a powerful argument over time as I was reading and writing my way through the Bible. It's like, it's everywhere. Maybe mm -hmm. I should write a book about it. And so that's where this came from because, and I, I still, every day I look at the, when I read the Bible, I was going, wow, 
this is real, you know, because the evidence in the text kind of tells me, you know, that this, hey, yeah, this, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, that was going to be like the first title, but that wouldn't have worked, I guess. But so a good portion of your book focuses on the motivation of the New Testament authors. So in other words, what would have prompted, say, the gospel authors to invent the type of Jesus we find in those writings? If it, if it was made up, you know, if the details were made up, they seem counter to what we'd expect of those trying to rally within first century Judea. So Mike, can you expand on a little bit about that and how you go about explaining those facts? Well, I was initially going to call it psychological, the book, Psychological Apologetics, but nobody would have known what the heck that meant. But to right. me, what it meant was the psychology of the people, because as I began mm. to read, it was like like Abraham and Sarah. That's so counterintuitive that God's going to call a six, what, 65-year-old woman and a 75-year-old man to have a child and then that's the whole the whole of the covenant. Everything is going to depend on that child and the way they react. You know, Isaac's name is he laughs because it's sort of a joke that a right. 90-year-old woman could have, you know, and on and on. I mean, and it's just all throughout the Bible. I focus in the book on the New Testament, but there's like the criterion of embarrassment. I mean, I heard Dennis Prager say recently, he's written some books on the first, uh, the Pentateuch, and he finished one on Deuteronomy. And he said, I know it is divine. Because no people that wrote that, no other holy book in the ancient world, is that negative. And it's mm. unrelentingly negative from the beginning to I'm reading through the minor prophets of just Malachi today. And it's just there's there's bright rays of hope, you know, the coming of the Messiah. But it's just, man, who makes that up about themselves? Do you write stories about you that just makes you look horrible? <laughs> you know? That's a really good point that maybe people who are Christians who've, you know, grown up in the faith, they've never actually thought about because they say they've never read, uh, you know, another maybe ancient holy book or even something like the Quran. Right. Right. This is a fact that my Muslim friends are constantly on on me about mm -hmm. where they read these stories of the prophets. They read the, you know, Daniel and they're like, no, this this can't be the case, because why would you write something that's so disparaging about the king? Oh, right. Yeah. I just did a blog post about that because I finished Daniel. It just reads so real. Mm -hmm. When you talk about Christian, I wrote this for basically fellow Christians because all of my life until, and I'm in, you know, when I started writing this in my other, I was in my fifties, I've been a Christian since 1978. So I, and everyone else who's a conservative Christian believes the Bible's is it God's inherent, holy word, authoritative, right? We believe that. And we don't believe it's made up either. Right. But could it be? So in the back of our minds, there's this little like, maybe, not really, but possible. So if somebody brings that up to you or has like, Jonah and the fish, oh, come on. Well, who would make up a story and want you to believe it about some guy getting swallowed by a fish and staying alive for three days? So you have to take into account the negativity, the criterion of embarrassment, and that generally human nature being what it is, and it's pretty predictable over the last, all of recorded history, that mm -hmm. we try to make ourselves look better. We right. just do. That's just human yeah. nature. But you see in the New Testament, I mean, these are great examples of it, that how, you know, people are made warts and all. I mean, they just, it's like almost like they're writing eyewitness history. They're just saying what happened. And I, I have a, a chapter in the Bible, in the Bible, in the book called the, the Conundrum That's Jesus. And he confuses the heck out of everybody. I mean, it's really genius that you could make up a story that, that he is so perplexing to everybody. 
his friends, his enemies, his family. His family thinks he's nuts. I mean, she can go on and on. It's just like, and and I keep you tell people that there was no such thing as fiction as we know modern fiction in the ancient world. And skeptics and cynics will say, "Oh yeah, well you look at," but it doesn't read anything like the Iliad and the Odyssey. You know, even though they have warts, it's nothing like the, how embarrassing the New Testament is. You know, the men are cowards and the women are heroes. And who right. does that in the first century to try to appeal to a Jewish male audience or a Roman male audience? You know, Jesus, the first person he reveals that he's the Christ to, is a Samaritan woman who's had five hundred. I mean, just like you have to read that and go, who makes that up? Unless it were true, right? Because the Samaritans were their enemy. Who makes a story? How about this one? All, everybody, all of us even if we don't know our Bibles, know that a good Samaritan is somebody who means well and does good. Hmm. That is the last thing you would make up in the context of first century Judaism, because Samaritans were only like 900-year enemies of, of the Jews. They were, they were at odds over everything. They didn't think each other were legitimate. <clears throat> and yet here's Jesus telling a story, making the Jewish religious professionals look bad and a Samaritan look good. Hmm. Who is my neighbor? So the argument I make too in the book is that for 300 years, because of biblical criticism, I call it question-begging anti-supernatural bias, meaning uh, beg the question just means to assume something. Before you even get to the text, you have a bias against supernaturalism because that's what the Enlightenment was about. Right. So those people who started thinking this way looked at the text and said, obviously, Jonah and the whales made up. Jesus coming, you know, raising Lazarus from the dead is obviously made up because that can't happen. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> How do you know that? Well, I don't know it, but I just believe it because, because why? And, you, you know, it's just, so they, they, so for the 300 years, everyone who has been a critic of the Bible thinks, assumes the stories are easily made up right out of the brain fiction. That's what we have to challenge. And and I think a lot of people assume because there are miracles, uh, this is something you, you talk about in your book with sort of that, um, that bias against supernaturalism, mm -hmm. that it, this is embellished, that this has to be embellished. And um, a part of my academic uh, study when I was in seminary was uh, comparing and contrasting some of the works of the apocryphal literature that came in the later centuries. And you read, I, I once uh, saw this great event where a New Testament scholar was talking about apocryphal literature and someone in the Q&A said, well, why isn't the gospel of Peter in the Bible? And he said, you know, you read it, you come back to me and you tell me why it's not in the Bible. Because people assume Jesus walking on water, well, that's crazy. You know, that's way out there. But you read something like the, there's a late second century document called the um, Acts of John. And in the Acts of John, John is staying in this inn and his bed is full of bed bugs. And so in the name of Jesus, he condemns the bed bugs and they all file out of the room. And, um, <laughs> and you read that. that kind of stuff and you're like, okay, okay, that's, that's real embellishment, right? Exactly. But, but that supernatural bias or that idea that because we've because of the Enlightenment, we've sort of been poisoned with this idea that, well, obviously, you can't weigh these things historically. That kind of muddies the water, doesn't it? Completely, because we're steeped in secularism. Mm. You know, secularism is even people who believe in God, and everybody does. I mean, there's a handful of philosophical atheists, but they're just practical atheists because God can't really do anything in this world. Right? He's up there. You know, he if, if anything happens to me. You know, I'll, I'll cry out to him or he's, his job is just to make me feel good, you know. Um, anyway, so that's the way most people think. So they come to the text before they even look at it. This can't be real. Jesus walking on water. I mean, 
calming a storm. But who makes up a story about those things and wants other people to believe it? You notice how the – see, that goes back to psychology. The miracles – I have a chapter on the miracles. They, they confuse people. They freak people out. Mm. They wonder, you know, where does this – like after Jesus calms the storm and they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And they were petrified because the implications of that is like, you know, only Yahweh speaks to storms and they stop. You know, they were afraid they were going to die. Now they're afraid of this guy who just saved their lives. So, and again, psychologically, you just put that in their brains. It's like, you would have to be an infinite genius to be able to make that stuff up and make it read real. So I use a term called verisimilitude, which simply it means it appears real. It has the appearance of reality. So when you watch a TV show or a movie, if it's not done well, if it doesn't have verisimilitude, you're checking out quickly. Because that's just stupid. And then you have to suspend disbelief because, yeah, although I know that's stupid, eh, the story's done well. So, you know, maybe we have to do a little suspension of disbelief at some points to get maybe there. But when you read it, everything in the context, context, especially of redemptive history, it's beyond powerful. I mean, it's just, it's thrilling. It's like, this is real. We right. don't want to believe in phony stories and lies. You know, yeah, yeah. It it has the 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 appearance, the flavor of truthfulness mm, to it. That's a good way yeah. to put it. The flavor, I like that. So, as someone in the field of New Testament studies, what I really appreciated um, about some of the things you highlighted were drawing from individuals like uh, Geza Vermez, who was a, a Jewish Hungarian biblical scholar, who's probably best known for his complete translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls into English. But also, you wow. you reference New Testament scholar and historian Richard Balcom. And one of the ideas that he pioneered was recollective memory. Yeah. So could you share a little bit about what that is and why it's significant for the uninvented flavor? I use that one. Mm -hmm. The uninvented flavor of <laughs> the biographies of Jesus. The idea of it's called Jesus and the eyewitnesses. That is the book. And if you like scholarly books on this kind of stuff, that's a great read. Recollective memory. So our memories are terrible when it comes to things that aren't important to us. So what did I have for breakfast three days ago? Now I'm a freak because I'm very habitual. So I could probably, I could tell you, <laughs> but most people, you know, what did you have for dinner two weeks ago? Or just silly stuff, you know, everyday things, you know, what did I, you go to the store, you forget what's on the list and you don't look at the list. I do that all the time. My wife says, look at the list. And I don't, and I forget, but traumatic things that he talks about things that, that are really earth shattering. Right. You tend to have really good memories of them. So I, I use the examples, you know, the, the three and a lot of people who are still in our lifetimes are uh, uh, Pearl Harbor, Kennedy's assassination, and 9-11. Mm -hmm. And everyone remembers the moment they heard that. And you could, I could say 9-11, my wife freaks, so she's freaking out, comes in the door. I'm just waking up, getting ready to go to work. And she's like, someone ran it. I mean, she was freaking yeah. And I go, like, what, 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 what? And I could see myself go downstairs. I could sit in and we're, it's on TV and you're going, oh, and I, the whole day, that whole time period. So the Bible, when you look at Jesus, like I call him a conundrum, right? I, he, and the fact that he's perplexing, that the miracles were not expected. The Messiah wasn't expected to be a miracle worker. He was going to be a king in the line of David who you know, destroyed their enemies like Rome now. And they've had enemy after enemy, right? oppression after oppression, a Syria, you can go on and on back through their history. 
and Rome was, was just the latest. So finally, Jesus is coming. And, you know, so everything in his teaching hmm. was, was nuts. So I want to, you mentioned Keys. I want to read in a second something regarding his teaching, because his teaching was as bizarre to them in many ways as everything else about him. So the example I use in the book is that eat my flesh and drink my blood. You know, the reason you would remember that as a first century Jew is because it's condemned in Deuteronomy by Moses. You will be cut off from your people. Now here's this guy who he thinks the Messiah tells the people, the Jews, to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Hmm. Imagine, him, think about that day and everyone's just going like, whoa, this is a hard saying. <laughs> you know, this is this is bizarre. So, and that's not to mention a resurrection uh, or a crucifixion. I mean, the last thing that the Jews expected the Messiah to be was crucified on a Roman cross, which is a tree, which meant he was under God's curse. So think about, I always think about that day and everything they were going through psychologically and emotionally and, you know, three years of living with this guy and now he's a fraud. They had to believe that. And yet they, he couldn't be. And, you know, if he got stoned, like I say, for blasphemy in the book, that was the normal Penalty, judicial pen penalty for blasphemy, stoning. They could have sort of put wrapped their minds around it. But dying on a Roman cross under God's curse, the Messiah? Mm. So you think about that day and the next day, and you think about the women going to the tomb and how that would all be recollective. Yeah. And that, there wasn't just one person experiencing all that. Yeah. Plus, you and I assume the Holy Spirit is involved in this whole thing. <laughs> that he brought Jesus promise, you know, I, I'll remind you of everything. Don't worry about it. You know? Yeah, we have to so, lose that, don't we? We we lose that kind of the shockingness of oh of something like the crucifixion because we're so used to seeing that portrayed. You know, it's in children's books. It's ugh. and and to be removed two thousand years removed from really the, the just vulgarity of the whole situation. I, I I write in the book. I found this little book. It's amazing how God does this when you're like you're writing and. This has been my experience, and he'll just pop something in front of me, and I read that. So I read a little book about, I forget what it's called now, about the crucifixion and how traumatically evil it was that people wouldn't even use the word. I'm yeah. talking pagans, not just Jews. I mean, it was that disgraceful. I forget the word you just used, but it was so shocking. It was so horrific. Vulgar. It was so vulgar. Yeah. That's a perfect word for it. Yeah. It was so vulgar. And the reason we do is because, oh, there's little bunny rabbits on Easter and, you know, and, you know, and then Jesus rose from the dead. You know, we know the end of the story. So, or Christmas is the same thing, you know, it's all little shepherds and, you know, anybody can make that up. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But you're right. I mean, especially yeah, the cross. It is Cicero. Cross. Cicero says that no Roman citizen should, should use the word cross because mm. it's, it's so, it's so. Yeah, offensive. Vulgar. I mean, yeah, offensive. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and what does Paul say? It's a, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. You yeah, know? really. That's, that's one of my favorite lines in Greek. It's scandalon. Right. It's, it's a the scandalous. scandal. Yeah. Absolutely, because it is. It, so the skeptic, you know, you you say something like I'm going to say, it's so ridiculous. It has to be true. Right. So Tom Holland writes this book called Dominion. He was a historian of the ancient world, loved it since he was a child. And he was like everything, Greeks, Romans, war. And then over, as he grew up into an adult, he realized, like, I have nothing in common with these people. Like, literally nothing. Where, where, where did I come from? 
And he does a whole book on how Christianity transformed the Western world. Everything, even the perversions of the, of the like human rights and now transgender rights, you know, these things are, those are a perversion of the good stuff, but the good stuff all came from Jesus. If you know anything about the history of the West, it's, you know, God against Christians against paganism and, and the Christians won. But I say that about the scandal, scandalousness of the cross, that lies do not do what Christianity did, mm. which transformed the world, still is transforming you and me every day. Lies don't do that. It's not mere psychology. Even Jordan Peterson, who I love, you know, he's so psychologically tuned in that he's, I don't know how close he is to Christianity, but he seems to be getting close. His, his daughter says he's writing a book disproving atheism, <laughs> you know, because he, 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 he sees the reality in the lived life of people. Mm. A phrase I use, I learned from Tim, the phrase wasn't from Tim Keller, but the idea is that if one thing isn't true, something else has to be. Right. The consideration of the alternative. So if Christianity is not true, Jesus didn't actually come physically out of the grave and make all this stuff happen. What did? It is interesting, isn't it? And and I think this testifies to the thesis of your book is that we almost seem to be seeing a resurgence or a renaissance of intellectualism. You know, you had this new atheism, which really wasn't that new. And I think At people <laughs> realize the emptiness of the new atheism. You know, all you are is a product of time plus matter plus chance. You know, that doesn't give you much hope. Oh, great. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> and then there's been this switch where you have the Tom Hollands and the Jordan Petersons. And even to some degree, Sam Harris has done this kind of interesting... <sighs> He's not quite as far as the others, but like opening up to the idea of the supernatural there, and meditation. Right. There and are others. The benefits. Right. This is definitely. Yeah. And I think it's. Especially with the, what we've been through in the last you know handful of years, whatever. Yeah. People are, people are I think there's an awakening happening. There's yeah. something happening. And I think God people are waking up to that. Oh, okay. Well, I, I have purpose. <laughs> I have meaning. <laughs> So I'm I'm not going to get that from thinking that I'm, you know, um, molecules in motion, bumping into other molecules in motion. I call it lucky dirt. Right. Yeah. Lucky, <laughs> you know, lucky that's dirt. it. Yeah. Bags of And see, seculars, I tell my kids, exactly. Yeah. I, I tell my kids, you know, secularism promises everything but right. offers nothing. Why in America right. do 48,000 people a year kill themselves? Yeah. In the richest, most prosperous, safest in the history. I mean, there's just not even close. Yeah. I'm just reading something else about my, in Micah about the um, – anyway, so when, when, when this happens, when the Messiah comes, you know, there will be safety and peace. And, and each man will be able to lie down under his vine tree and fig tree, blah, blah, blah. When I was growing up, well, even earlier than that, 50s, whatever, people just didn't lock their doors. Hmm. Right. Now you, you know, you lock your car, you're, you're, you're never afraid somebody's going to, because Christianity has went poof, has gone poof, you know, in, in the culture. Yeah. And it's secularism, I believe, I'm very convinced of this, we are on the other side of it. You know, secularism has been weighed, I'm actually writing a book sort of about this, but has been weighed in the balance on the scales and found wanting, and it's desperately wanting. And you mentioned meaning, purpose, truth, you can't get that anywhere else except yeah. Jesus. Post-secularism, right? We were post-humanism, oh, post post-Christianity, and, and right. post-secularism. Well, Christians tend to be doomers, you know? It's just like, uh, and eschatologically, there's a tendency to think Jesus is going to come back and save the day. But, you know, I think God's doing a great thing, whatever our eschatology is. And he is, he is working, and I listen to a lot of testimonies, and it just hmm. blows my mind how creative the hound of heaven is. 
Right. How creates a poem from 1790, uh, 1890, but I forget the guy's name, but just, he's just, he saves his people and he's doing it everywhere in every language in every nation. And, and Western secularism is dying. It just, it just is yeah. all of the, all of the experiment from, you know, Descartes in 1350s on with rationalism and Pierce, they're all dying. Yeah. I know we don't have a ton of time, but I really wanted to read something from the book. You mentioned Giza Vermes, right? Yeah. Okay. This is on Jesus teaching. And I remember how I said how bizarre it is in the blood and eating the flesh. And this gets back to what we were talking about in terms of it being easy to make up. Hmm. And people who are not, I, I say in the books, maybe several, everyone wants a piece of Jesus. Every religion claims him, right? right? <clears throat> Literally. It's not just like a few. Every, even the secular humanists. I mean, um, Jefferson famously had his, his non-supernatural Bible. He cut all the supernatural parts. I mean, just quintessential rationalist. It's just beautiful. <laughs> so, so this just, to me, communicates so perfectly how they just, they don't think that's a problem because they don't even think about it. Right. That's how powerful the bias is. So, so here's Giza Vermes. He says, no objective, quote, no objective and enlightened student of the gospels can help but be struck by the incomparable superiority of Jesus, unquote. He then quotes from another Jewish author. In his ethical code, there is a sublimity, distinctiveness, and originality in form unparalleled in any other Hebrew ethical code. Neither is there any parallel to the remarkable art of his parables. Then Vermes adds, second to none in profundity of insight and grandeur of character, he is in particular an unsurpassed master of the art of laying bare the inmost core of spiritual truth and of bringing every issue back to the essence of religion, the existential relationship of man and man and man and God. Hmm. And then I, I say, there is a lot of fly food in those sentences made to smell like roses. Hmm. The only way anyone can make up such breathtakingly inane comments is by dealing with a partial Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't say things like eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yeah. How sublime is that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> the wisdom. Huh? And a lot, all of it, a lot of his teaching is that way. It's just, it was so over the top weird. Yeah. And I, I really like that. And, and on that note, one of the things that really bugs me that I continually see online and which I think your book does a good job of highlighting the nonsense of is people saying that the gospel testimony is, is something like hearsay. Well, in, in actuality, in a rule, uh, in, in a in the rule of law, it's much more narrow than is implied when people kind of make that accusation. So the right. inadmissibility, inadmissibility, easy for me to say, of hearsay right. concerns a statement in some context outside of the sworn testimony that is used to establish mm -hmm. the truth of the matter under the question. So, for example, Mike, if say that you're on the stand and you say that an accused criminal admitted the crime because he said it to you over coffee in a cafe. Well, that's inadmissible hearsay. That is what that would be in a court of law, but that's completely irrelevant to the historical right. investigation that we would see that something like you do in your book with the gospels, because that is, there's no courtroom or sworn depositions in history. So the distinction right. doesn't even apply. And on top of that, which you talk about um, and have talked about, right, with uh, verisimilitude, that appearance of, of truth and the likelihood of it, um, John himself actually claims to have been an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. So it right. would make sense to make, it wouldn't make sense to make that analogy because the contents of John's gospel and witness testimony in, in a court um, are not, are not 
the same. Right. And I, I bring out, I say it, one of my chapters is uh, you, Jesus is too popular to make up and you don't make up a rock star Jesus because everyone knew about him and the whole Roman world at the time and the Greek and everything was put together so that this all goes back to history and how God providentially ordains things. But Jews would flock to Jerusalem for the uh, festivals. So there were, by some estimates, millions of Jews, of people there from around the empire who were and Jesus was the water cooler talk of the day. Talk about, you know, recollective memory. Jesus did such bizarre stuff and unexpected stuff that, you know, people are going back to the home or going back to where they came from in Africa and going, Jesus, this Messiah, he did this and he did that and he did that. So if you're making stuff up, you have a lot of people to fool, right? Because a lot of them experienced it firsthand. So, you know, and they, when you read it, they, they're, this is all claimed to be eyewitness testimony, you know. Luke with with Paul, the careful historian, and he has I think some, I talk about something like eighty three different historical and and archaeological and geographical facts that are spot on. Historians have proved everyone's proved, but yet he's just going to make up stories about miracles, right? Or just take that as from somebody else, you know? Yeah, I heard it firsthand that that Paul raised the the the, the his uh, sister's son uh, right off the ground after he fell out a third story window or something. Right. Uh-uh. You know, stuff like that. So it's, uh, I, I say you can make up a pagan Jesus a lot easier than you could a Jewish Jesus. Mm. I think it's absolutely impossible mm. to make up a Jewish Jesus, given everything. And the fact is, is that the only thing could have got Jews, you get, you have to explain the empty tomb. The only thing that explain what happened is, is the, the resurrection. Right. The book is Uninvented, Why the Bible Could Not Be Made Up and the Evidence That Proves Us. Mike, where can the listener find your content? Where can they purchase your book? Uh, why don't you do a little bit of a, a shout out? So Amazon, and uh, and there will be a uh, – I just finished an audio book, so I'm, I'm just waiting for the folks who run Audible and all that to approve it. It should be done anytime, so that will be out there. And then my website is where I kind of spew my thoughts that are never ending from my volcano brain. Uh, my name, MikeDVirgilio.com. So it's M-I-K-E-D-V-I-R-G-I-L-I-O.com. That's great. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I hope this has whetted the appetite of people who are interested in the topic and that they go out and they get the book and they really digest that. And uh, like you said, uh, have a motivation and a hunger to explain what they believe in and why they believe it. Um, otherwise, thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. Oh, my privilege. I really appreciate it. On that note, we will be back next week with more things to think about. As always, love God, love people. It's the AD Podcast. Podcast. Podcast.